This is the Monday, May 22, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the Regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine visits a small beach town with big White House history. It's the Church of the Presidents in Long Branch, New Jersey, where seven commanders-in-chief vacationed, dating back to the Gilded Age. They started flocking to the shore with the man who crushed the Confederacy, General Ulysses S. Grant. And they continued to come through five of the next six, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, who passed away in a cottage across the street, that was 1881, Garfield's successor, Chester A. Arthur, Benjamin Harrison, and William McKinley. The last man to attend services here was New Jersey's former governor, Woodrow Wilson. Our coachman on this journey is Jim Foley, president of the Long Branch Historical Museum Association, headquartered at the Church of the Presidents. You can read more about their work to preserve the history of this Garden State gem at churchofthepresidents.org. And you can keep tabs on their historical events by liking their Facebook page. Oh, and since we're going to be kicking off the unofficial start of summer with Memorial Day next week, why not consider adding the Church of the Presidents cocktail party fundraiser to your social calendar for August. If you love the Gilded Age, history, or just one of the presidents we mentioned, it's the place for you. Okay, now that we've slathered on our sunscreen and popped open our parasols, let's get a pew up front with Jim Foley and explore the Church of the Presidents. I'm excited to be sitting down, ready to talk some history with Jim Foley, president of the Long Branch Historical Museum Association. The association is headquartered in the Church of the Presidents in Long Branch, New Jersey, a -a one-of-a-kind historic site that we're really fortunate to be able to explore today with Jim. Thank you for opening your site to the History Author Show. Thank you, Dean. It's a privilege. Let's start with painting the scene of the Church of Presidents for our listeners. Describe what they can see now and what features from the original 1879 structure the Long Branch Historical Museum Association hopes they'll be able to enjoy when the restoration is complete. Well, the church building itself, the museum now, is exactly the same as it was in 1879. It was built as a small chapel, except for the large tower three-quarters of the way in the back of the building. Originally built in 1879, in 1892, the congregation at the Summer Chapel had expanded and they decided to enlarge the building. 
So they basically cut the building in half, put the rear end back, and then built the tower in the middle of the building itself. Now, we can't prove it yet, but coincidentally, the following year, Anthony Drexel, one of the founders of the chapel, had his daughter's wedding at the site. So we suspect that maybe he built this addition to accommodate his daughter's wedding. St. Peter was a rock upon which Jesus said he'd built his church. Your church, the Church of the Presidents, may be a spiritual descendant of that rock, but it actually has no foundation. So that might make it easier, I would think, to cut a building in half and start adding things onto it. So explain for us how sitting right on the sandy soil as opposed to a rock foundation or a wood foundation contributed to the chapel's fall into disrepair. Unfortunately, that decision to build it directly on the ground contributed substantially to the deterioration of the building. Towards the end of the 1980s, the building had fallen into disrepair. It was ultimately listed on New Jersey's top 10 list of most endangered historic sites within the state. The contractor who helped us restore the building brought in some historic preservation-minded people from Monmouth County in 1989, and they were so in fear physically for their life because the building truly was in jeopardy of collapsing that they could not wait to get out of the building as quickly as humanly possible. Wow. It really was in danger of just collapsing like a house of cards. When you look at it, it's not a big imposing church. People picture a church, maybe they picture a lot of stone, at least some brick. I guess it does have some brick, but it's so humble. And I think that speaks to the idea of the early republic, certainly the Gilded Age, when after the Lincoln presidency and he was he had all the war powers and Congress decided they wanted to kind of pull back some of their power, and they had some executives that weren't really interested in dictating policy, and they didn't have a war to fight. They sort of stepped back. They returned to this idea of serving one term and being done. That came after Jackson, and then Lincoln served two, and then they were all pretty much going to be one-termers. Grant served two. You're local. They called him the first citizen here, right? time. The fact that they went to this little place, this church that almost looks like a strong wind could blow it down, and yet it hasn't blown down. It's lasted all this time, in part due to your preservation efforts here. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and you mentioned something here. We were looking at the historic plaque out front. At the top of that plaque, there's the seal of the presidents, and you were explaining to us that you uh, had to go through some trouble to be able to use that, or effort anyway. One of the things that surprised me, which I didn't know, but we learned through this restoration process, we wanted to use the presidential seal. I mean, we thought, hey, we've had seven presidents come here. Why can't we use the presidential seal? Well, apparently there's a federal law that says it's illegal to use the presidential seal without an act of Congress. Once we found that out, we actually contacted our local congressman, U.S. Congressman Frank Pallone, who happened to live on the grounds where President Garfield died. And we actually had him get congressional approval for us to use the presidential seal on our marker in front of the museum. And I like the marker, which people can see if they go to churchofthepresidents.org, because it has so much writing on it. You know, some of them are just easily, their history is listed in one line, you know, on this date and such and such. So this guy was born here and, and this is what he did. This one has a nice chunk because you have seven presidential names, U.S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James A. Garfield, Chester A. Arthur, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, Woodrow Wilson, 
that you have to explain that it was deconsecrated in 53. Then you have to tell people that it was named to the National Registry of Historic Places, where the preservation funding was made possible by New Jersey Historic Trust. This place is really so full of history. It's scary to think that it might have been lost and that even here in the second decade of the 21st century, we're reaping the historic benefits of men like Pullman from the opulent railroad cars of the period. We still hear Pullman sometimes referenced. George Mortimer Pullman, he's one of the founders of this chapel. You talked about today's Congress and people pitching in to help, like Congressman Pallone. Who else helped the building get constructed in the first place? Because those were also some big names. They were big names. Lewis Brown, who was related to the Brown Brothers banking business, President Grant was one of those. Two of President Grant's best friends, George W. Childs, the Philadelphia newspaper man, and Anthony Drexel, who was the Philadelphia banker. Those were the big names and movers uh, as far as building the, uh, the chapel itself. Lewis Brown donated the land, and the rest of the men put together the capital to build the structure. It's in a carpenter gothic style. Again, paint a picture for folks of what the building is, what they see when they drive by there on Ocean Avenue. Most people, the first thing that they see is the imposing crenellated tower. It's a large gothic-looking tower. Seems a little bit out of place in modern day. But back then, when it was built in 1879 and the tower added in the 1893, many of the seaside cottages had towers in it. Moses Taylor, who lived on Ocean Avenue and had another church built in his recognition, had a large six-story tower on his house. It was actually President Grant from his cottage immediately north of Moses Taylor's place commented that it should have been called the House of Many Gables compared to Hawthorne's House of Seven Gables. So that looking at the museum itself, you see the tower. And then the rest of it is just a cedar shake siding building with lots of stained glass windows in it to let the sun in. And when you mentioned gables there in passing, if you people have done any restoration in their own homes themselves, I'm thinking Oh, no, that that all requires repair. That's all places. Water can get in and damage it, especially when you're talking from 1879 for the former St. James Chapel. Those are all places where you realize why these men inside working thought, oh, gosh, that's real historic bravery. That's risks to take to have to go in that building. That's another thing on your website. One of those videos, those guys are up there on a ladder trying to fix those, and there's cracks in the foundation, and you you might have to run at any second. It really did require some bravery, and it required some people to say, we're not going to let this building give up. We're not going to give up on it. You know, you can write a book. It's great. I have many authors on, but I love bringing people that are writing history in their own life. That's one of the reasons I named the show, The History Author Show, because my idea is we're all writing history. You can just be raising a child. You don't know someday is going to be president or someday is going to run the Pullman Company and change the world with railroads or with medicine or something. And whenever I read a presidential bio, There's always some little moment in there. For instance, with Long Branch, when President Grant returns after, you know, he's been taken advantage of in this investment scandal and it crashes on Wall Street and the man he trusted runs off with the money and Grant is broken. He's upset. He's obviously depressed. He feels he's, he's let these veterans of his army down, right? And they come back to Long Branch and he says, I don't know how I'm going to be received. Am I going to be booed? Are people going to throw fruit at him? You could see him wondering. And they welcome him warmly. If I could just piggyback on one of the things that you said as far as 
President Grant after the collapse of the Grant and Ward brokerage firm up in New York City. He truly was uh, financially and emotionally devastated by that. And he had been invited to the Ocean Grove Auditorium to give a speech to the Grand Republic Army Chaplain's reunion immediately after the collapse. And this was actually his first public appearance after the collapse. Needless to say, he was somewhat nervous about speaking publicly. And all of the organizers of this reunion were a little bit concerned also. What would the public reaction be to them? Would they criticize him for being so foolish as to let this happen or being too trusting? There were 10,000 people in the Ocean Grove Auditorium. He was introduced by Reverend Palmer, a young Civil War Army chaplain. And when President Grant approached the mic or the platform to give his speech, the 10,000 people stood and cheered him for about 15 minutes to the point where President Grant uttered a few words and then fell back into his chair and cried. And that was, to my all of my research, the only time that I've been able to find that President Grant sobbed publicly. And out of that, you know, maybe if he doesn't rise up like that because the people of Long Branch favor him as a first citizen and have this affection for him, Maybe he doesn't sit and write his memoirs, which is considered one of the great works of literature, one of the great works of the war. Now, those people didn't think they were making history there when they were just saying good morning to General Grant. Great to see you again, making him feel good after this naive mistake that he made trusting the wrong people, which he did many times in his life. But I love that. I love you can come here and sort of walk in the footsteps of one of those Civil War veterans. And I wanted you to walk us through those steps here in the town Say you served in the Grand Army of the Republic, and you're walking down that Ocean Avenue here, past the Church of the Presidents, past Pullman's house, George W. Childs, President Ulysses S. Grant's home. Put us in that person's shoes. What what did it mean to people to be in this town in the summer with all these titanic figures and presidents around? President Grant, during his presidency, and the entire family absolutely loved coming to the Jersey Shore. They loved coming to Long Branch. They loved coming to their oceanfront cottage in Elbron. They looked at it as a well-deserved respite from the pressures in Washington, D.C., and the people, the locals, and then also all the other summer visitors loved driving up and down Ocean Avenue in horse and carriages, hoping to catch a glimpse of the president on the porch to his cottage, out there smoking a cigar, or he and Mrs. Grant enjoyed taking rides on Ocean Avenue in their horse and carriage every morning and every afternoon. And he truly enjoyed being out in the fresh air, in the public, riding his horses. So it truly was an opportunity for everyone to be able to see him. It's not like he was held up and shut off to the public, that he he made himself available, that people could actually just walk up to his door and sit down on the porch and chat if they had the nerve to do so, that he would not usher them off. (laughs) Yeah, it was an approachable guy and a small guy and humble and quiet. So it's really something that he just comes and he obeys rules. Like, for instance, you talk about him riding a carriage around here in Long Branch when he comes and 
he was given a ticket when he was in New York City. He was racing uh, in his carriage, and the man realizes who he is, the policeman, and he says, no, I, I deserve the ticket kind of thing. And at uh, Ocean Grove, I wanted to ask you about that little town near here because of the preservation there. That's a great place, many Victorian homes. But that was a story of Grant, too. There was no driving on Sunday there. So he came to the gates of Ocean Grove, and he just tied up his carriage, and he walks the rest of the way. It's like he's a president, right? He's like, but he just he was a very unassuming kind of guy. His humility is probably one of the reasons why he's my favorite president out of the seven or out of all of our presidents. Abraham Lincoln said of him that he is truly the quietest man Abraham Lincoln had ever met. He actually, President Lincoln said there were several times when U.S. Grant, General Grant, was in my office for 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't even know he was there. That's how quiet. Uh, however, any time that General Grant was charged with a task, people were always moving. And that's a direct quote from Abraham Lincoln, that people were always doing. So as quiet as he was, he was also a mover and a shaker, and he knew how to get things done. Very telling about their relationship, too, because here's Lincoln, who people are constantly lobbying him, constantly nagging him, constantly pulling him one way or the other. And he finds this relationship with Grant where the man's going to speak when he needs to speak, and that's going to be kind of it. And I, I love that about him, too. I just think he's just such a regular guy. Those stories of him and his wife, you know, just they just have a beautiful relationship. And I, I was thinking, too, as far as Julia goes, she probably loved the shore in part because of her vision. No, you can go to the beach, and you can close your eyes, and you can enjoy the sound of the ocean. You can enjoy the smell. You can enjoy the sounds of the birds and the sand. There's tactile feeling. They could ride their horses there, which they love to do together when you're moving, when you have bad vision. She probably had double vision a lot of the time, as we talked about in Candace Chai Hooper's book, Lincoln's General's Wives. So I just love that idea of them finding things to love about the Jersey Shore, very similar to those we find today. When I pulled up to the Church of the Presidents today, I noticed you'd installed a new wrought iron fence replacing the chicken wire one to protect people from disturbing the site and protect the site from them. So I wonder what other progress you've made in 2016 and with us looking ahead to the summer of 2017, what do you hope people will be able to see when we hit Memorial Day and the summer unofficially kicks off? 2016 was truly an amazing year for the restoration efforts at the Church of the Presidents. We finally finished the exterior restoration of the building, except for the windows and a couple of doors. But we reinstalled the stained glass cross windows into the tower of the building, which is the first time that they've been in the building since 1998. So that was a tremendous accomplishment. We finished the exterior siding on the building. So we're right now getting ready to turn our attentions on the inside of the building to start the interior restoration. Our goal is, and that was my commitment that I made a year and a half ago when I became president for the Board of Trustees, was that within two years, we're going to at least have part of the building opened. It's been closed long enough. It's stabilized. The exterior is restored. We have to be able to let people to get inside and take a look and see. So we're actually going to reopen a part of the building so that people will be able to come in and watch the rest of the restoration take place while it's taking place. Open the doors, right? That's your Open slogan. Open the doors. Long Branch was the focus of the nation during those late 18th century summers. The Church of the Present is still standing, but not so for many of those significant buildings of the period, like Grant's Cottage. 
Describe the town when U.S. Grant started the trend, not just of visiting here, but directing the federal government from a summer White House. It was kind of like a Camp David or you know, now the president has Air Force One. Wherever they are, the whole government travels with them, really. The apparatus, they have phones. In this area, it's not as easy to communicate and people start to grumble a little. So describe what the government was like at this time when Long Branch kind of becomes the summer White House. Well, the section of Long Branch where President Garfield's cottage was, was a brand new section. It was a cottage colony south of the hotel proper. And one of the founders of the Church of the Presidents, Louis B. Brown, was also the founder of Elbron. And Elbron is actually named after him, L.B. Brown, Elbron. As I said earlier, Louis Brown related to the Browns and the Potters, the great architectural family. The Potters are the ones that built the Church of the Presidents, and they also built many of the cottages in Elbron, including the Grant Cottage, the George W. Childs House, which is still standing today, and the Grant Cottage, which were side by side. So the president did have all of the Civil War generals who were in his cabinet. They also had cottages here in Elbron. They would come over to his house. They would conduct official business. I mean, during the summer months, as soon as Congress adjourned, he hightailed it down here by train and then picked up his horse and carriage and conducted whatever business he needed to do while here at his cottage. There were those that poo-pooed his spending so much time in Long Branch or two or three months during the summertime. And he didn't think twice about it. He was able to do his work and he got his work done and he, he let his distractors say what they would. Part of that idea of the executives kind of taking a little step back from Lincoln with all these war powers and being in the White House and directing it. You know, these guys, for better, often for worse, kind of let Congress, let advisors, let their cabinet run things. And it made for a very democratic country. I think Jefferson, if he was still around, would have liked this idea of here are these presidents just you know, wandering around by themselves, no guard, no nothing. The Secret Service doesn't officially take over the protection of the president until after McKinley's assassination in 1901. So this is a very personal relationship you can have, as you said, going up to the president's porch and just sitting there. I mean, it's it's, it's an incredible, something we can't relate to today. You can't get, you know, within a thousand feet of a president. And, you know, I understand that the world has changed, but we've lost a little, some of that, and the fact you can come back here and really imagine it when you look at some of these historic homes that are still standing, I think that's great. And to be able to go to the church and say, someday when you're finished your restoration, say, he would have been sitting right in front of you. You could have sat right behind a president, right beside a president. After Lincoln was shot, I think it said something about their trust in the people, that they would sit among all of them. And usually they would sit up front. I would, I would assume that's the case in this chapel. So you have everyone behind you. Where would they sit? Do you know where they sat? Is uh, We don't know for sure. We suspect. We don't know for sure. But we assume. I don't know if Grant would have sat in the front row, being as humble that he was, but you know, at least in the second row. Theodore Roosevelt's pew is marked in the church that he attended in Oyster Bay, Long Island. He is pretty close to the back, actually, now that you right. mention it. Again, very different from today, although yeah. Washington is in the front, but I mean, probably because, you know, he was Washington. So he, they probably wouldn't have accepted him sitting anywhere else. They probably would have had him stand at the pulpit and talk to them if, if he was a speech-making kind of guy. But that's well, there something. There is a uh, great article in a Harper's Weekly interview with George W. Childs one of the founders of the museum and the, a multimillionaire out of Philadelphia with his newspaper business, and he served as an usher at the Summer Chapel. 
George W. Childs taking people to their seats and seating them and then bringing them their hymnal and for some women bringing them a fan because there was no air conditioning back then. You know, as humble as Grant was, it seemed like he enjoyed associating with other humble people too. If people go down the shore this summer, as we say, to take in some of these historic sites, to visit the Church of the Presidents, one place they can visit is Seven Presidents Oceanfront Park. And I wanted to mention them because I want you to be able to describe to people what I've said here about what people will find today and how they can experience a summer day that's very like what they would have experienced back then, only with some of the modern comforts. So how did this park get its name and what do people experience there? Well, that's a county park, and I believe that that was one of the guys from Buffalo Bill Cody's company, his traveling circus. There were actually, I believe, like 27 cottages, and by cottage, we talk about a large uh, Victorian home. Buffalo Bill, the great showman that he was, actually had those cottages built, and many of his company would actually stay there when they were in town. So over the years, some of the cottages uh, were torn down. I think there's only one or two of the originals still standing, but it was ultimately taken over as a county park. It's a great oceanfront park. They have natural sand dunes there, so it really does give the feel of what it would have been like to come visit during the Victorian era. We're honored to be at the Church of the Presidents with Jim Foley, president of the Long Branch Historical Museum Association. You can visit their website at churchofthepresidents.org and watch some videos on the progress their restoration has made so far, including putting those crosses up again and doing some work to restore that roof. You can keep tabs on their events by liking their Facebook page. You can find that at their website too. Jim, only in your state headlined their article on the Church of the Presidents, quote, There's no chapel in the world like this one in New Jersey. That's not an exaggeration. Seven presidents worshipped here more than any place outside our nation's capital. I wonder how you personally came to have such reverence for this spot, this holy historic ground, and decide you were going to pitch in and kind of take it upon yourself to do your bit here to restore it. I was fortunate enough to be born and raised about 150 yards away from the building itself in an old historic mansion, four-story house, two acres of land. And when I was a teenager, a young child, the museum had annual art shows to help raise money for the continuing restoration efforts. The original president of the museum, Edgar Dinkelspiel, passed away in 1997. His wife, Florence Dinkelspiel, took over as president of the museum. At the time, I was the deal historian, a position I still enjoy, And what Florence had done was she contacted me and she contacted Dr. Fernicola, who was the Allenhurst historian and the author of the book, 12 Days of Terror, and Marie Sylvester, the Interlaken historian who wrote the book Around Deal Lake. And she invited the three of us to join the board of trustees to join in the effort. So I really give a lot of credit to Florence for having a vision to carry on the work of her husband, which he started back in 1954. Actually, Edgar Dinkelspiel's dying wish to his wife was, please do whatever you have to do to save the building and reopen the museum. And that was what Florence did up until her death about 11 years ago. 
So first I was honored to even be invited to join the board of trustees. And then after Edgar and Florence passed away and their niece, Karen Van Heys Gunther, assumed the presidency, she and her husband moved down to Florida a year and a half ago. And I was the longest serving person on the board. So they asked me if I would be the president. So I have since that time. You know, being born and raised down here at the Jersey Shore, I remember as a child, and the Ocean Township Museum wrote a great little, I remember when, about this. I loved the fact that there were seven presidents that were here. I remember in grammar school, out on the playground, talking to all my friends, saying, can you believe that there were seven presidents here? (laughs) I didn't actually know which seven they were at the time, in second and third grade, and I guess whichever president we were studying in school, I was like, yeah, James Madison was here, and James Monroe was here. Well, I I got the names wrong initially, but just the fact of thinking that there were seven that were actually here in our own backyard, to me, was fascinating. So it truly is, uh, you know, I feel like a a duty and a responsibility that if there's something that I can do to help preserve this national treasure, then it is my obligation to do that. What can people listening do to support the reconstruction efforts? Obviously, the number one thing that we need is money. So if people are out there and they're looking to make a donation, feel free to do so. Or if they want to make a financial contribution, that would be extremely helpful. But we also need other things. We need electricians. We need carpenters. We need landscapers. We need anything that there is out there that is associated with the building. We could definitely use volunteer help with that. You know, as well as I do, raising money for a historic project like this is not an easy task to do. There are so many other worthwhile causes out there. You know, my wife and son serve on a board of trustees for a cancer foundation. Uh, So when you're, you know, competing against, you know, little children with cancer, well, it's hard to say, well, give us some money so we can put in new stained glass windows on a museum. Speaking of people that are facing those tougher challenges, President James A. Garfield passed away in a cottage overlooking the ocean just across the street from your site here. On the grounds of the Church of the President, there's a small tea house. Well, they call it the tea house. It's a small little building there with built with railroad ties, little roof, very, very cute little building. Looks like elves might live there. <laughs> What's its connection to the martyred president? After President Gorefield had been shot in Washington back in July of 1881 and suffered in D.C. for the summer, The decision was made in early September to bring him to an oceanfront cottage here in Elbron in hopes that the sea air would help his recovery, aid him in his recovery. And we really did, the nation believed that he could recover from these wounds. The decision was made to bring him. They did not want to transfer him from a train to a carriage down Lincoln Avenue. So they decided overnight to build the eighth of a mile railroad spur right up to the front porch of the Franklin Cottage. And they did that. They started at 6 p.m. on September 5th, 1881. And by one o'clock the next day, they had completed the entire thing, which to me is an amazing feat to do an eighth of a mile railroad spur. Unfortunately, our hopes of his recovery did not happen the way that we wanted to. September 19, 1881, he died and was brought back to Washington over those same tracks. He was back in Washington after the funeral. The tracks on Lincoln Avenue were torn up. 
I guess, the Tom Cruise or, you know, whoever the most famous actors are today, Oliver Byron, who was a popular actor at the time, he bought the ties and had this little tea hut built and had it on his property up in the highlands. Over the years, it got moved around a little bit, but ultimately ended up on the grounds of the museum. So it's nice to have that little momentum with the railroad ties, and then there's actually a rail from the track in the ceiling of the building itself. You can tell Jim's from New Jersey, by the way, because the first actor he thought to compare to an actor from New Jersey in the 1880s was Tom Cruise, New Jersey's (laughs) own, from uh, up in Glen Rock, up in northern New Jersey. So see how we're all connected somehow. We're all connected back to New Jersey and especially to the New Jersey shore and now to the Church of the Presidents. I always think of that little spur when I go up the North Jersey coastline or down it, and the train does stop there in Elberon, and I think of them making that little spur. And it's also a line in the Johnny Cash song, Mr. Garfield. It's an old ballad of the true West that we laid him down there in that long, lonely branch. And I always think of Long Branch because of that line or the branch of the train where they would call that. Imagine having to build a train line for you. He was a very beloved, they call him at the Garfield National Historic Site out in Mentor, Ohio, the best president we never had. We talked with him a little bit when I spoke to Candace Millard about her book on Winston Churchill, Hero of the Empire. But we talked a little bit also, though, about Garfield, her book on his assassination, The Destiny of the Republic. Now, we've talked about some of the presidents who worshipped here and vacationed on the beach, but when I interviewed Feather S. Foster about her book, Mary Lincoln's Flannel Pajamas, she said, don't forget my gals. So I want to give a word here for the gals. What was the summer like for the first ladies like Julia Grant, who vacationed here with their husbands on the sand and at the surf? Well, it was a great time because obviously they got to spend much more time with their husbands than they did in Washington with the challenges of their office. But I just wanted to mention Mary Todd Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was not one of the seven presidents that came, but Mary Todd Lincoln did come to Long Branch in 1861. And I know that's in Feather's book. But it truly was a good time for them. They got to spend time in their private cottages or with the Garfields, usually in the Elbron Hotel. They got to attend balls at the great hotels, and they were certainly the center of attention and much fanfare paid to them, but then also private time with their husbands and with their families. So they truly did have a good time. One story, if I could, about President Grant and the relationship he had with Julia. Their son, Jesse, wrote in his memoirs that they were always chiding each other. And one day, Ulysses made a comment that maybe Julia wasn't as physically fit as she once was, to which she immediately responded, yes, she was. And she got up out of the porch rocking chair and vaulted the railing uh, down onto the ground. (laughs) So Ulysses had to eat his words. (laughs) It's fun to see them as just, I don't know, horsing around. Another author here, David O. Stewart, that I spoke to about his James Madison book, Madison's Gift. And he said, you know, he'd put Dolly on his back and they, or rather she would. She was a stout woman by this point. And James Madison was always a little guy, much like Ulysses S. Grant. And 
he'd climb on her back and they would race up and down the porch. She'd carry him around. I mean, this is a former president, the father of the Constitution, the Secretary of State towering figure, and they're just kind of having fun there. So I, I think that's somewhere at the shore lends itself to that. Even though they still were men of great dignity, they still were able to have fun. And I think it's nice their wives were able to also let their hair down a little. And I hadn't thought of just that factor, being on vacation with somebody with such an important job, such an all-consuming job. And yet here they come to the shore and they can just relax and talk and do all the things that they would like to do. These were all people with very close spouses, good relationships, I think. I guess Arthur, his wife passed away before he was president. But other than that, you had people with good relationships. Uh, I'm not sure about Wilson, maybe, because he, I guess he would have been, still been married to his first wife at that point. But still, I, I look at those, all of them, and say, you know, Lucy Hayes, these are wives that played a big part in their husband's life. They were young and vibrant. Great to see them enjoying themselves. Before President Carter sold the last one, a yacht went along with the presidency. And I read a little bit on one of the historic sites down here at the shore about the Grants taking the ship up to Manhattan and coming back from New York. We just talked about them coming back on that very depressing trip after the crash and the failure. So how did your seven presidents arrive in Long Branch and make their way to the chapel? Was it by boat mostly or just by the train? There were several. I mean, there was uh, there were the ferries that went from New York to Sandy Hook. So sometimes they took the ferries, sometimes they took their trains, and they always had their horses and their carriages shipped here so that when they got here, their transportation, once they arrived, was through horses or horses and carriages. But it was usually by the train or the ferry. In Long Branch at the time, or around the time here, my fellow Rutgers alumnus, Vice President Garrett Hobart, was born, I'm trying to remember the year, I think it was maybe 1844. 44? Okay, 1844. Off the top of my head, I think it was okay. 1844. I was going to say 49. I wouldn't have been right. But I want to confess that I didn't know that because Jim here, one of those great people, makes you push up your game, right? You're used to talking with people, if you do at all, about Garrett Hobart, who know nothing. For instance, there's a picture of him with President William McKinley in McSorley's Old Ale House. And some students were there and they had Rutgers coat on. And because I was from Rutgers, I talked to them, you know, these fellows with their girlfriends bringing him to this historic bar for the first time. And my friends started saying, Rutgers, we go to the games. And I told them that's one of our fellow Rutgers graduate closest we got to a president. He was vice president. But Jim here tells me about historic figures, things I did not know, which is a great thing. So exciting for me. So you told me some of those about Hobart, because I wanted to ask you if he ever worshipped here at the Church of the Presidents. And you told me no, and then you asked me some questions about him that taught me things. Right. Well, uh, he was a uh, certainly a local hero around here. And first, let me just clarify, when I say, no, he never attended services at the Church of the Presidents, we haven't documented that he has. It wouldn't surprise me if he did, but we just don't have documentation of that yet. But yes, he was actually born in Long Branch. That picture that you talk about with him and President McKinley was taken here in Long Branch at the house that was rented for the visit, uh, which was actually called Norma Hurst, and ultimately torn down. And a guy by the name of Murray Guggenheim built his house there, which is today the library for Monmouth University. So that was the site of the photograph that you're talking about. But one of the great stories I like to relay is when Garrett Hobart was just making a visit to Long Branch, and he's walking up 
Broadway Avenue, and there were several of his classmates from grammar school, also on the street, who apparently didn't recognize him. He was somewhat offended, and he stopped them and said, what, are you guys too good for, you know, a vice president of the United States these days? And obviously, they were embarrassed that they didn't recognize their old school chum and uh, immediately had a grand time reminiscing. But I think the question that I asked was, does anyone know who Garrett Hobart was named after? Hey, you put me on the spot. You said, do you know who he's named after? And I said, Mrs. Garrett from the Facts of Life, which <laughs> I was my best guess. But. All right. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> second place isn't bad. I mean, he was in the second position. Being related to so many people down here, his uncle was a Garrett Vanderveer who was a prominent landowner, and the Vanderveers had been here for centuries. So Garrett Hobart was named after his uncle, Garrett Vanderveer. And that picture, by the way, is a fascinating one. You can see if you go to McSorley's, and I went and looked at it to see if it was that picture of him with Hobart, which I never knew was in Long Branch. The listeners should have seen my face when you just mentioned it. You saw my face. I, my jaw literally dropped, everybody. Because when I saw it at McSorley's, I said, let me get up close in this sort of dank bar and see if it's the original with Hobart. Or they did kind of a 19th century version of Photoshopping to add Theodore Roosevelt into that picture because there wasn't time to do a photo of the two of them together. So they just kind of airbrushed poor Hobart out of there and stuck in Theodore Roosevelt. You could find both versions. And because McKinley was a 1901 president, because he was of Scottish-Irish ancestry, and because McSorley's has been there for so long, it was the original photograph. So I loved it that it was the Hobart one. You know, not They have plenty of stuff about Theodore Roosevelt in there, but I thought it's great. I, I love to see Hobart when I visit in there. That's pretty cool. Between Grant and McKinley, the only president who didn't spend Sunday here is Grover Cleveland. And he was born, retired, and died here in the Garden State. So I wonder if there's a reason he didn't vacation in Long Branch and visit your chapel. Well, Grover Cleveland, and that's another trivia question I always like to ask people is what is Grover Cleveland's first name? And usually Stephen, that one I got. Usually the answer is Grover, and I say, no, it's <laughs> Stephen. But born in the same town that my dad was from, Caldwell, New Jersey. And Grover Cleveland vacationed down in Point Pleasant and down in Waretown. He liked uh, hunting so much. And by the time that he was president, hunting in this section of Monmouth County was not so much so that he would have the freedom down there. And then also he had his house up in Cape Cod and Gray Gables. So that's where he spent his vacations. In my research for our interview, I noticed your name attributed in a caption of a photograph. It showed U.S. Grant's porch chair, which it said you'd removed from storage specifically for that piece to be for people to be able to see and take a picture of it. And so I had to ask you honestly, Jim, did you give into the temptation to sit in General Grant's chair when you took it out for that photograph? Yes, I have sat in President Grant's chair. And where we are right now, you can see the chair, which is about eight feet away from you right now. So after this interview is over, if you would like to sit in it, we can make those arrangements. I would absolutely love to sit in General Grant's chair. I don't know if I'm worthy, but uh, and I might be too big too, because it's just a wicker chair. And the fact that it survived this long is incredible. It makes me think of Theodore Roosevelt's trip to see Julia Grant. It might even have been here in Long Branch. I don't know where it was. His wife, Theodore Roosevelt's wife, Edith, had connections, his second wife, too. She was raised not too far from here for summers anyway. 
that was up in Shrewsbury where uh, Edith Roosevelt was from, Edith Carroll at the time. So he had a connection. And when he met Mrs. Grant after General Grant had passed, T.R. was speaking about his great admiration, which will surprise nobody who knows T.R. for the general. And she offered to let him touch General Grant's sword. And T.R. writes about it, how awesome this was. I was able to touch his sword. I could just see him, you know, freaking out. It was, suddenly he's a five-year-old boy. And that's one thing that Edith said about him. I have six children, really. You know, it wasn't just the five. It was also her husband, you know, I can see him running around with the sword like the Madisons on their porch. I have one final question for you, and we can relate it to the stone that now stands to mark the place where the cottage was that James Garfield gave up his life. I think people are inspired when they see someone trying to save history, as you've done here at the Church of the Presidents. It helps your cause to have seven presidents behind you, as you mentioned. But what advice and inspiration can you give listeners who want to save a site that's not nearly so significant? And we'll use as an example this young man who got that marker put there in front of where Garfield died. I think that, um, you know, when a person is passionate about whatever it is that they're trying to save, and I think we as Americans, uh, we like stories and we like history. So that when we can articulate what it is that our story is and we can express our passion for that, there will be people that come together and join in our efforts. Whether we're trying to save the Church of the Presidents or Ocean Township getting the Woolly House as their official site for their museum, or little Bruce Frankel trying to get a marker placed in front of the former site of the Franklin Cottage where President Garfield died. Everyone has a story to tell. And he was only eight years old. I thought that was such a wonderful story. And there was no marker there, right? And he took it upon himself to try to get it built. Yes, he did. And I know when I came to the town looking for it, I went to the library. They had no idea where the cottage had stood. I was on Lincoln Avenue. I was riding my bike and I was with my wife. And I said, well, this is Lincoln and this is Garfield Place. So it has to be on this road. And I was driving around there and I couldn't believe it wouldn't be marked. And then a garbage truck moved and there was the stone. It said on this spot. And so I sat down there and took a picture with it. And I was so happy to find it because it was painful. I could share the pain as an adult of not seeing the place marked, just feeling bad for this president who died in such agony, was killed so senselessly. And so it made a connection for me. And I hope that other people will try to make those connections. Even someone you never meet. I might never have sat here and learned the story behind why this stone was there. But in a hundred years, people will be coming to this church and maybe they'll dig up our interview here and I hope you people in the future have hover cars by now. You can hover over Long Branch yeah. and look at the church and take it all in. It's just wonderful to be able to preserve it, to actually be able to go someday soon, hopefully. Jim Foley, president of the Long Branch Historical Museum Association, thank you for welcoming us into the Church of the Seven Presidents here in Long Branch, New Jersey, and for keeping history alive by restoring this one-of-a-kind site. Best of luck with those restorations, and I look forward to visiting again when you open the doors. Thank you, Dean. Again, the historic site we visited today is the Church of the Presidents in Long Branch, New Jersey. Once again, my thanks to Jim Foley, president of the Long Branch Historical Museum Association. You can visit them at churchofthepresidents.org and keep tabs on their efforts to preserve the jewel of the Jersey Shore's Gilded Age presidential history by liking their Facebook page. And while you're online, visit us on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. 
We'd love to hear what you thought of this remote interview and if you'd like to see us getting out in the field more. No book to plug this week, but we do have a recommendation. Remarkable Women of the New Jersey Shore. Clam Shuckers, Social Reformers, and Summer Sojourners by Karen L. Schnitzband. As for presidential history, you can find plenty of great titles in our archives. If you decide to pick one up, please navigate through the links on our site or through the Amazon banner on our homepage. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. It's just a few extra clicks for you, but it'll help us tip our bartenders at that Church of the Presidents cocktail party in August. Get the details at that same website, churchofthepresidents.org. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.